Well, good morning, and uh, it's good to see you again. I'm glad to be back and excited about this new series that we are launching today. And I want to begin with a question, and it's this. What are the most overused words of 2016? Now, you may have some that you think about and from time to time, and, and for a while now, there have been some different groups that, uh, that from time to time will publish their lists of various overused words and phrases. And these are just words that kind of just need to be given a rest, maybe words that need to be retired uh, for a little while from popular vocabulary, sometimes words we have just ruined. Uh, can you think of any? I, I think we all have our pet peeves. There's some words and phrases we really <clears throat> don't like. I want to give you some examples uh, that I found online from different lists. And, you know, if you overuse any of these, uh, you may have some friends and family who will be grateful if you would consider not using them for a while. I don't know. Uh, but uh, let, let me share them with you, and I'll just I'll let you know ahead of time that I may or may not use these words myself from time to time. First one is honestly. And so this means something like, so usually I'm lying to you, but uh, this time I'm going to tell you the truth. Honestly? We're always saying that. Uh, another one that you're all familiar with is whatever. 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 Uh, here's a third one. Hashtag. Hashtag, 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 hashtag. You know, you know some people that like to just put a hashtag in front of everything they say. Uh, here's one more, cray cray. <laughs> so it has exactly the same number of syllables as crazy. And uh, crazy, when you use that word, doesn't make you sound cray cray, you know. So um, here's another one, literally. You know anybody that's always using the word literally and it doesn't even mean what they say? It's kind of like that line in The Princess Bride, you know, you remember that? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and then, like. Like. Like, honestly, like, whatever. Like, hashtag. Anybody here uh, need to confess their overuse of the word like? And if you won't raise your hand, the person next to you, just point at them, you know. <laughs> and then, last but not least, Totally, totally, people are always saying totally. Well, here's another word that probably shows up in everybody's list of overused words, and it's a word that some of us need to recalibrate because we don't use it in the right way, and it's the word awesome, awesome. Have you ever noticed how today everything is awesome? You say, yeah, totally, I mean, we're always using it for everything. In fact, some of you who are parents know that the theme song of the Lego movie a couple of years ago was, everything is awesome, right? And, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Mountain Mike's Pizza, awesome. Madison Bumgarner's latest pitching feat, awesome. And it was last night. It was awesome. You know, a 50% off sale at Nordstrom's, awesome. I found this close parking space at Rayleigh's, Awesome. There was extra $5 in my pants. Awesome. I mean, it's just awesome this, awesome that. There was a communications expert who was complaining about the overuse of this word awesome. And he said, you know, if I see something today that truly is awesome, what do I call it? You know, there's no word left because we've kind of ruined the word. Well, what I want you to see today and in the weeks ahead is that God is truly awesome. 
And he's awesome according to the, the original meaning of the word. I want, I want to give you the dictionary definition. It'll kind of get us into where we're headed today. It's very important to this series that we're starting today. The word awesome means inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, and fear produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, or the like. Now, did you catch that word fear? The Bible talks about the importance of fearing God over 150 times. Fearing God is an extremely important concept all through the Bible, Old Testament as well as New Testament. And that's what we're going to be looking at in in the weeks that are ahead. We're going to be talking about the awesomeness of God and and learning what it means in our lives to fear God, how we can fear God. And, And fear is a healthy response to the awesomeness of God. Now, you've been looking at this artwork on the screen for our series, and you're seeing a picture of a lion. And this is no ordinary lion. This is meant to signify Aslan. Do you know who Aslan is? See, Aslan, if you've ever read the children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the hero of the story, and he's this enormous lion. Now, the backstory to this, of course, is that C.S. Lewis, the author, was a Christ follower, and he, he intended Aslan to be a Christ figure in these stories. And, and in all of these Narnia stories, there are four siblings, two brothers, two sisters, and they get transported to this magical land. And early on in the account, they are going to meet Aslan for the first time. And, and before they actually meet him, they have this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Remember that? Some of you are going, really? Beavers? Yeah, just deal with it. Talking beavers. Um, and one of the children when he hears about Aslan, asks the beavers this question. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responds, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Another child interrupts, then he isn't safe? This time, Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So here's the question. Is God safe? And today, we're going to be considering three not-so-safe, somewhat-scary attributes of God. We need to be reminded today that God is not a tame kitty cat. God is a, a lion, an awesome lion. And yes, he is also a, a good lion, but he is, he is someone that we need to learn to fear. And we're going to be getting at in this series a problem that really uh, I think many of us deal with uh, throughout our, our Christian lives. And it's very easy for us to, to come into a place where we have this kind of casual uh, view of God. We don't take God seriously. And so this message today is titled, Be Afraid of Not Fearing, because that's where some of us need to get to today. Some of us don't really fear God, and the reality is if you don't fear God, you need to be afraid. You need to learn the fear of God. Now, some of you are maybe taking this right now in some directions that I don't mean at all. Maybe you've grown up in a church tradition where you learned an unhealthy fear of God. I'm not talking about that. God is not cruel. God is not capricious. God is not arbitrary, not at all. God is a loving Father. But we must never casually dismiss 
God in his awesomeness. We must always live as creatures in the presence of our creator. And this is something we have to learn. It's something that God has to grow in us. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at these three different attributes from three different stories that we find in the Bible along with a, a, an appropriate response on our part. So how should we respond to this attribute of God? How do we learn to fear God? Here's the first story, and it's going to tell us about God's awesome power. And we find it in the book of Exodus chapter 14. So while you're turning to Exodus 14, let me give you a little backstory. Uh, it's about the year 1400 B.C. God's people have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and they cry out to God, and God sends them a deliverer, and his name is Moses. And Moses leads them out of bondage into the promised land. But initially, Pharaoh, the ruler, is reluctant to let them go. I mean, he's had for, for all these years this free source of slave labor. But God, you know, has a way of convincing people. He sends 10 plagues, and 10 plagues later, Pharaoh says, enough, you can go, and God's people take off. But no sooner do they leave than Pharaoh regrets his decision, and he sends an army out to retrieve them, and this army includes 600 charioteers and thousands of soldiers. And at this point in the journey, God's people, the Israelites, have made it to the shore of the Red Sea, and they're standing in front of this body of water, looking out across it, wondering how they're going to make it you know, across. So they're going to have to go around and take the long way. And as they stand there, they, they hear the rumble of chariot wheels. And they turn around and look, and they, they see this cloud of dust being stirred up by Pharaoh's troops. What will they do? Well, they cry out to God. God, help us. God, save us. And what happens next is, is one of the most famous events in all of the Old Testament. God tells Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And Moses stretches his hand out. And God sends a gale force wind sweeping in from the east, this desert wind that that parts the water and dries out the ground and creates this dry path uh, through the sea, walls of water on each side for the people to cross. Anyone ever see the movie The Ten Commandments? You know, there's, uh, there's two versions. There's the original 1956 version And then there's the 2000 version that three or four people watched, 2007 remake. Um, The 1956 version actually is considered one of the greatest movies of all time. It won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. And today we kind of have to, you know, roll our eyes a little bit when we see their visual effects because they didn't have the technology we do. They didn't have computer-generated graphics. And I I learned uh, some time ago that the way they parted the Red Sea in this original movie was they put these two huge water tanks on a parking lot in Hollywood, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in each, and then they dumped them out um, into the parking lot, and then they reversed the film that they filmed. And that was the way it it, it went backwards. That's how they did it uh, back then. That's how uh, Charlton Heston, a.k.a. Moses, you know, parted the Red Sea in the movie. Well, the original Moses, he didn't do it that way. He called on God. And God demonstrated his awesome power. And the nation of Israel set off across uh, the, the, the dry ground through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh tells his troops to follow them. And they all go in because they're not going to let him, them get away. And this is actually where we pick up the story. Exodus 14, verses 26 to 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. 
Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You see, when they saw the, the great power of God, this is, this is literally uh, the mighty hand of God, when they saw his power over the forces of nature, over the, the Egyptian army with all its chariots, all its soldiers, when they saw the power of the Lord, they feared him. And it was an appropriate response. They feared God. Now, what did that mean? How did they express it? How did it, it show up in their lives? Well, we just read the end of Exodus 14. Well, let's keep going in Exodus 15. Look at verse 1. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. See, when God's people saw this awesome display of his power, they feared him. How did they fear him? Well, they feared him by engaging in worship. Moses writes a song. The people begin to sing the song. And if you drop down to verse 20, you'll see that we're told that Miriam, the sister of Moses, she grabs a tambourine and gets all the ladies dancing. And like they crank up the amps. I don't know. They start banging the drums. They're just all singing from the bottom of their hearts. Praise to Almighty God. Now, if you want to know the lyrics of the song, well, this chapter, Exodus 15, is pretty much nothing but this song. Let me read you a few excerpts. Verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 8, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Do you see? This is the, the response of God's people to God's awesome power. It's a response that shows they fear God. And this response is boisterous, enthusiastic, loud, corporate worship. In fact, not too long after this, the children of Israel, the nation is going to be at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And one of the top Ten Commandments, number four to be exact, God gives it and instructs his people to set aside one day a week every week for precisely this kind of worship activity. In the Old Testament, it's called the Sabbath day. You say, well, yeah, I, I know about the Sabbath day. It's the day of rest and recreation, you know, Sunday. It's the day where I get to do what I want to do. I mean, I can shop at the mall. I can watch the Giants. I can drive my kids to my, their travel sports teams. I can go golfing. I can, I can have a weekend getaway with my spouse. I can just sit around and relax at home. Well, yes and no. 
Yes, you are free to engage in activities that refresh you, but no. No, those things are not to interfere with focused time for worshiping God, with with gathering as God's people, as God has commanded to worship him for his awesome power. Commandment number four actually reads like this. This is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Notice that. It is to the Lord your God. In other words, Sabbath is, first of all, for God and for his glory and for his purposes. The focus of that day is not to be on us, not to be in our recreational plans. The focus is to be on God. So let me apply it like this. You can write this down. If, if we fear God, one of the things that we will do is prioritize time every week to gather with God's people to celebrate his power in worship. And I bring this up, it kind of occurred to me, I think, because there really is a disturbing trend that's taking place among people who claim to follow Christ. Over the last number of years, I've talked to different pastors about it. I've actually read several studies, sociological studies that have been done about it. I even see it happening sometimes with some of us here at Southwinds. And the trend is this, uh, people who really uh, increasingly just make it to worship here and there, here and there kind of whenever. You see, some of us may remember a time when, you know, if we were committed to worship, we'd be there almost every Sunday, every time we could be there. But today, this is actually uh, data that has been recovered. The average church attenders uh, attends 1.8 times a month because, you know, people have stuff to do. Uh, Like what? Uh, And this is not a legalistic kind of a thing, but it's something you should ask yourself. What possibly could bump the worship of Almighty God? A Giants game? A Raiders game? (laughs) A family outing to the beach or the lake or the mountains? A round of golf? I mean, these are all like great recreational activities, except for the Raiders game. That's an utter waste of time. Um, but an awesome God deserves our corporate worship. He really does. And and I'm not saying there's something wrong with you if you don't make it to church 52 Sundays every year. This is not a legalistic duty. Yes, we take vacations. Yes, people get sick. Things happen. But I am saying that when you fear God, you will make it a priority. When you fear God, you won't need me to tell you you should... Worship God with his people because you will already want to worship God with his people. And because you want to worship God with his people, you arrange your life in such a way that you prioritize worship because you fear God. Because you fear God. He is an awesome God who deserves his people gathering every week to celebrate his awesome power. By the way, by the way, there will be great benefit for you as well. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how when you head into your work week, it makes this huge difference if you have prioritized the worship of God compared to the times you don't? You know, whether you have spent time in God's presence, worshiping him with his people, receiving encouragement, receiving strength, compare that to the times you skipped out and 
You just did some other thing you wanted to do. Maybe it's a little frivolous, self-centered. You just did what you wanted to do. But now you head into the week, facing that week without the sense of his presence. See, why would we do that to ourselves? Learning to fear God means we learn about his awesome power. We experience his awesome power, and that causes us to want to worship him. And a big part of that is gathering with his people. Here's the second story I want you to see today, and it's talking about the attribute of God's awesome holiness. Go ahead and turn over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And again, as you're turning there, I want to give you the backstory uh, for this passage. Isaiah begins this chapter by telling us about this vision of God that he's been given, and he, he actually dates it. It happens, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and we actually know that year. It's the year 740 B.C., We know that King Uzziah was a very great king in the history of Israel, and his reign was a golden era in the life of Israel. Not since the days of King David and King Solomon. A couple of centuries earlier had there been so much prosperity in the land. Uzziah was this very capable administrator. He was a a powerful military leader. The nation was prosperous. But this prosperity came with a dark side. All around, Isaiah Uh, was noting there were people growing increasingly materialistic. There was this growing pursuit of pleasure. Heavy drinking was taking place in the land. There was a disregard for the poor. There was a lack of interest in spiritual things. It kind of sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? And that's really where we pick up the story with Isaiah's vision of God. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I want you to stop there for just a moment. Holy, holy, holy. You've heard me say before that in ancient Hebrew, uh, they didn't have underlining and bold face, things like that. If you wanted to emphasize a word, if you wanted to make it into a superlative, you did that by repetition. And if, if you wanted it to be at the highest level, you repeated it three times. And that is what is being said about God's holiness here. It's significant to note that you can go through the Bible and you will never find the Bible speaking about any other attribute of God like this. You, you will never read that God is love, 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 even though... God is the most loving being in the universe. You will never read that God is powerful, powerful, powerful. You will never see the Bible say God is gracious, 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 even though these things are true. You only read holy, holy, holy. And what's so significant, so important about this attribute of God? I mean, we sing lots of songs about God's holiness, but do we really know what it means? Well, the word holiness means set apart. It means distinct from. God is holy because he is set apart from the people he has created in his image. He's distinct from humanity. He's different from us. He's the creator and we are the creatures. How would you understand this? Well, there's two things I would point out. First of all, God has supernatural characteristics we don't have. God is infinite. We are finite. God is the source of all life. He has life in himself. We depend on him for life. We do not have life in ourselves. 
God is omnipotent, and we are not. We are lacking in strength. We are vulnerable. We are, we are frail and often weak. So God is, has supernatural characteristics we don't have. But secondly, God is set apart from us in moral terms. God is absolutely, perfectly righteous. And do I need to say we are not? We are tragically sinful. And see, this is exactly what Isaiah is seeing about himself the moment he gets a a vision of the holiness of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, Isaiah feels the the doorpost of the temple shaking. He sees this room filled with smoke. Interestingly, this is very similar to the picture that we get in the Bible hundreds of years earlier at that scene that I referred to just a few moments ago when Moses meets with God at the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. You remember that? The whole mountain is shaking and the whole top of the mountain is covered with smoke and all the people are are standing around the bottom of the mountain looking up, feeling the shaking seeing the smoke. They are keeping their distance. They are terrified. Now think about it. What was Moses doing at the top of Mount Sinai? Well, he was receiving the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws, God's standards, the reflection of God's righteous character. Isn't it interesting that when Isaiah has this vision of God centuries later, it's accompanied by trembling, by shaking, by smoke. It brings to our minds the holiness, the high moral standards of God. And Isaiah looks at his life, and as he sees God's holiness, he he recognizes, I have violated those standards. This God is perfectly righteous, and I am miserably sinful. And he cries out, he can't help himself, he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips. Have you ever wondered what it is that causes Isaiah to associate sinfulness immediately with this part of his body? Maybe. Maybe it's because so much of our sinning is done with our mouths. You ever notice that? You agree with that? Things like lying, gossiping, boasting, raging, seducing, swearing, Train, all things done with our mouths. We do a lot of sinning with our mouths, don't we? Or maybe Isaiah associates his sinfulness with unclean lips because he knows that what comes out of our mouths is merely a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. It reveals our true character. Do you understand that you have never said something that you didn't mean? What we say with our lips, our tongues, always reflects our hearts. Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the man speaks, right? So he says, I am a man of unclean lips. That means he's recognizing his sinfulness, and it causes him to cry out, Woe to me, I am ruined. And and Bible scholars tell us that this translation of this word, uh, as ruined is probably too weak. It's kind of hard to, 
describe what he's really talking about here. If you could imagine somebody just disintegrating and coming apart, it's like just, just crumbling into pieces. Uh, in our kind of slang, we might say, I'm dead meat. I'm toast. Well, fortunately, Isaiah's encounter with God doesn't end on this note. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I want you to notice that it's made clear here, Isaiah himself cannot atone for his own sin. I want you to notice that Isaiah here is helpless to fix himself. When he cries out, I am a sinner, God doesn't say, good, I'm glad you finally saw it, Isaiah. Here's the plan. You've got to stop doing some bad stuff, and you've got to start doing some good stuff, and keep doing it like that, and at the end of your life, I'm going to count it all up, we'll measure it, and we'll see how it turns out. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say that at all. God makes it very clear that only when we recognize his holiness and we recognize our helplessness in our sinfulness, that's when God can clean us up. Only God can clean you up. Now, God does it here, in Isaiah's case, by telling an angel to take a fiery coal from the altar and and touch it to Isaiah's lips, and that removes his guilt. And, And again, notice what's going on here. This is rich with symbolism. The, uh, the altar is spoken of here, and the altar is the place where animals were sacrificed to God. You, you might say, well, why animal sacrifices? Well, because God has taught from the beginning of time that the penalty of sin is death. And that makes perfect sense. If you understand, if you see the truth, the reality that God is the giver and source of life, and then if sin is defying God and saying, I'm going to do it my way, that means if sin is unplugging from the source of life, it makes perfectly good sense that the penalty of sin is death. Now, in Old Testament times, because of God's great grace, God institutes a system where he's willing to accept the death of an animal in place of the death of the person who sinned. We call it the sacrificial system. But as we read through our, uh, the Bible, we, we get to the New Testament, and we learn that this all comes to a halt when Jesus is crucified because in God's plan, God eventually sends his son, the eternal son of God, Jesus the Christ, and he comes to earth and he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And that means today, if you surrender your life to Christ, if you humbly bow your knee, if you receive him as your Lord and your Savior, then your sins can be forgiven. He cleanses you from your guilt. Now, does that mean that you can now, as you're forgiven and cleansed, live your life any way that you please? Some people will say that, you know, all my sins are atoned for now, so why worry? Does that mean you don't need to fear God's awesome holiness anymore? No. In fact, it's true that once we surrender our lives to Christ, we no longer need to fear God's ultimate condemnation. We no longer need to fear eternal death in payment for our sins because Jesus has paid it all for us. However, there are still some ways that a Christ follower should fear a holy God. And this is the response part of this second point. How do we respond to the holiness of God? I'm going to give you two things. The first thing is that we should fear displeasing God. We should fear displeasing God. Now, I bring this up because I often hear people talk 
as if God is always pleased with us. It doesn't matter what we do, uh, what we do, how we live. No, now that we've been forgiven by Christ, God is always pleased with us. He sees us through Christ, and so he's pleased with us. But the Bible never really says that. That's actually a distortion of God's grace. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Christ followers are repeatedly told, do this to please God. Don't do this to please God. Just one example, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.10 that we should make it our ambition in life to find out what pleases the Lord. And so there are things that we do that please him and things we can do that displease him. And when we sin, we are not pleasing God. And that should break our hearts. You see, part of fearing God is we don't want to disappoint our holy God. I was trying to think of a way of capturing this reality, and all our human analogies will fall short. But I was thinking about some of us have had teachers in our lives or coaches in our lives, and they were hard. And they pushed us, and they stretched us, and they made us do things sometimes that were, what were painful in different ways. But when you had a teacher or a coach like that who at the same time you knew loved you and cared for you and wanted your best, you know what I'm talking about? When you had someone who did both of those things, didn't there just kind of well up inside of you this desire to please that person, to do the thing they were trying to get you to do because you knew they loved you? That's a small, small picture of who God is for us, how, how God it, it loves us so much that we should desire to please him. You know, when I confess my sins to God, one of the things that I have to say to him Sometimes is, I, God, I can't believe I let you down. You sent your son to die for me. Your spirit is at work in me to make me more like your son. And then I do this. God, please forgive me. I am so sorry. So we should fear displeasing God. We should want to please him. And then the second way we respond to God's holiness is we should fear God's discipline. The fatherly discipline that God brings to our lives. You know, a few months ago, we studied through the book of Hebrews, and in that uh, book, our study in chapter 12, verse 7, the writer tells us that we ought to fear God because if we stray from his path, he will discipline us like a good father disciplines a child who is errant. God uses hardship, the writer of Hebrews says, to do that. Now, it's important to say it's not true that every hardship in our life is disciplined from God. But if we get off the path, doesn't God often get our attention with hardship. See, I don't know about you. This is just me, but um, I don't need any unnecessary hardship in my life, kind of where I am right now. Anybody else, you know, get that? And so my fear of God is demonstrated by the fact that when I sin, I want to get back on the path quickly. I want to be quick to confess it. I want to ask God to help me change my ways. I want to tell God that I know it's only with his help that I can break the power of sin in my life. See, that's a response of fearing God, a response to God's awesome holiness. Do you take God's holiness seriously? Do you fear him? Or do you respond in a casual, light kind of way? Let's go to the third story. And this talks about God's awesome majesty. We find a story about this in the very last book of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet. And if 
you're wondering about that, guys. Actually, Malachi, that's just one of my bad pastor jokes. Um, it's the last book in the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew in the New Testament, you've gone too far, so turn back left. And it's a short book. It's just got four cha- chapters in it. And again, as you're getting there, some backstory. Uh, as we read, it's uh, about 430 B.C. And the circumstances that the nation of, of Israel, uh, the southern kingdom, uh, is a.k.a. Judah, is going through a time of spiritual apathy. Following God is a yawn. People are disinterested. They don't really want to hear God's word taught. They, they don't really want to walk in obedience to him. And, and Malachi makes the point that this is really appalling because about 150 years earlier, when that same sort of apathy had set in, God allowed his people to be destroyed by the Babylonians. He allowed them to be carried off into exile, captivity. They, they spent 70 years away from their homeland. And then by God's grace, they were allowed to come back and rebuild And Malachi is saying, you would have thought that we would have gotten it by now, but they didn't. They were sliding back into those same patterns of disobedience, straying from God, saying, "Eh, who cares? And Malachi is appalled by what he sees because he believes that God is a great God, a great king, a majestic God who deserves our best, who deserves our full devotion. In fact, you can go through this brief four-chapter book And you will see that Malachi uses the title for for God, Lord Almighty, over 20 times. He is a majestic God, in other words. Now, this is where we pick up the story. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Malachi writes, and this is God speaking, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? And some of you have a translation that renders that word respect a little more literally, and it says fear. Where is the fear due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, you're probably going, well, what's happening here? What's going on? Well, the people are bringing their offerings to the worship services, and this is an agrarian culture. Uh, They didn't uh, have checkbooks. Uh, They couldn't write a check and put it in the offering bag. They couldn't use their smartphone uh, to make an online gift. They had to bring animals from their herds. And God had made it very clear earlier in his word that when they brought their offerings out of their herds, they were to bring to him their best. In fact, God had made it specific. He had said that they were to bring to him a tithe of their income, 10%. And so they were to bring the very best animals from their flock and give them to God. But Malachi says they're bringing to God, they're bringing to the temple, they're crippled animals, they're diseased animals. The animals, they couldn't sell for anything at market anyway. In modern terms, where our offering is not the giving of an animal, I mean, honestly, I I hope you didn't bring a sheep or a goat to put in the offering bag. It's going to be kind of awkward getting it out. You know, today, we're to bring a tithe of our income, the first 10%. And so if we were to think about this specific example, in modern terms, that diseased or crippled animal would be sort of like, you know, the offering bag comes by, 
and you're, you're digging down here in your pocket to see whatever loose change you have to put in. Or maybe every month at the end of the month, after you've paid all your bills and you've done all the things you want to do, you say, oh yeah, I better give something to God. And you write out a check for 50 bucks or something like that. It's not anywhere near a tithe. We give 1%, 2%, nowhere near what God calls us to do throughout his word. Now, Malachi says, just to make it real plain, try that with your governor. See how he responds. So let's update this. In 2016 terms, what would that be like? How about this? Try that with the IRS. (laughs) Next April, you send a letter to the IRS and say, look, it's been a rough year, had a lot of repair bills this year, plus I really needed to take that vacation to Europe and uh, I needed to buy that new car, and so I'm just going to send you 20% of what you say that I owe. Deal with it. Anybody think that's a good idea? Anybody going to try that one this year? You say, I would never do that. Why? Well, the answer is because you fear the IRS tax-wise. And all the people said... And so God says to his people, how about fearing me tithe-wise? I'm a great God. I'm a God of awesome majesty. You're going to bring me your leftovers? Verse 9, he says, you're pleading with me to be gracious to you, to answer your prayers, to, to bless your lives, and you're stiffing me? It's like God said, really? Maybe he would have even said, whatever, I don't know. You're not bringing me the tithe, God says, and yet you're saying, God, do this, do that, bless me, make my life you know, better. He goes on in verses 10 through 14, and he says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. God says, Don't give me a token. In fact, I'll put it this way. If you think that something's better than nothing, think again. God says, I'm a majestic king. I deserve your best. I deserve the full tithe of your income. I deserve your complete obedience and total devotion. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 12, but you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. Verse 13, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. You're just tired of church. You're just tired of hearing about this tithing stuff. You're just thinking, when will Pastor Mike quit yammering on and on and on? Will he let me go? I mean, I don't want to hear all this. It continues, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God is an awesome king. He is a God of majestic, awesome majesty. He expects to be feared. How should we respond? Two words sum it up. Heartfelt obedience. 
Heartfelt obedience is the only appropriate response to God's majesty. And it makes me ask this question every one of us needs to answer. Do you obey God's commands? Do you seek to walk in obedience to what God says in his word in your life? See, now, the example that Malachi uses is not the only example, and it's not our only example. What we do with the money that God gives us, that's just one of the many ways the Bible commands us to obey God. We we could talk about many, many others. The question would remain the same. Do you fear God? Because if you fear God, you will be seeking to obey his commands. Now, there are uh, so many other things I could talk about. Deuteronomy 6.2 says we are to fear God and teach our children to fear God by keeping all his decrees and commands. And I love this next part, so that uh, you may enjoy long life. Now, I want to come back to that enjoy life thing in just a moment as we close. But let me park here for just a couple of minutes. And let me just say it this way. If we take God's commands lightly, we are not fearing him. Some of us need to write those words down. If we take God's commands lightly, we are not fearing him. And then you need to take those words and you need to spend some time examining your life and asking yourself, do I take God's commands lightly? See, if you don't ever study God's word, read God's word to know what he wants you to do, I can just tell you right now, you're taking his commands lightly. If you, if you hear what God says, maybe when you come to church and then you kind of click it off in your brain, and some of you already clicked off, I know, um, you know, I've been doing this a while and you already decided you don't like what I'm saying, so you're done. Um, you're taking God's commands lightly. That means you don't fear him. And God is an awesome king and God expects his word uh, to be taken seriously. He expects his word to be read and studied and digested and obeyed whether it's commands about tithing or commands about sexual purity or commands about honoring our parents or commands about forgiving those who have hurt us and we could keep going on and on with the things that God's tell us to do. If we blow those things off, if we try not to think about them, if we don't do them, we fail to obey and we're not fearing. Now, we all fail to obey at times. Every one of us. But the real question is this. What is the direction and intention of your life? Are you seeking to obey God? Do you want to know what he says so that you can do what he says? I'll give you one other example that will help you diagnose things. You ever find yourself when you're facing a temptation, it's kind of right there in front of you. You can do this or not do this. You can go one way or go another way. And you know, you know what God wants you to do but you want to do the other thing, all right? Now, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? So everybody who's ever been in this place at one time in your life, or you know someone who's been in this place, would you please raise your hand? Okay, I just want to know we're all here. We've all been at this place looking at a temptation. Here's the thing. Have you ever found yourself thinking, because you really want to do the thing you know God doesn't want you to do, have you ever found yourself thinking, well, you know God will forgive me. I know he does. He always forgives. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand on that, but here's the thing. Whenever you think that, you're not fearing God. Whenever you think that, you are taking his grace lightly. 
You are not looking at him as Lord Almighty, God of awesome majesty. You are thinking about what you can get away with and then trying to presume on his forgiveness. See, when we fear God, we will obey God. Let me just say this real briefly. When we obey God, our majestic king, he blesses us. We get to enjoy life. It's for our good. With obedience comes blessing on your life. And friends, that's why I would say to you today, uh, if you have a habit of sin in your life, a pattern of sin in your life, you should take it quickly to God and confess it. Repent, receive his forgiveness, be cleansed. Don't excuse it. Don't treat it lightly. Don't blame it on your mom. You know, that's not fearing God. And it will only lead to pain in your life. It's always better to fear God. And that's why I've titled this message, Be Afraid of Not Fearing. If you are here today and as you've listened to these stories and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to you and you realize there's some areas in my life where I'm not fearing God, you need to be afraid. But you don't need to stay afraid. You should allow the fear of doing the wrong thing to spur you to turn to God, receive his forgiveness, and begin fearing him. Will you do that today? Where where is God speaking to you today? Some of you need to write something down before you go so it doesn't just slip away on your way out the door. And as you're writing some things down, whatever the Spirit is speaking to you about, I want to ask all of us to bow our heads. We're going to pray as we close our time together. And we're going to ask God to teach us to fear him. Father God, we come before you today. And Lord, as we have thought about um, fearing you, we also need to remember that you are a God of love and mercy and grace. And Lord, we see your love and mercy and grace as well as your holiness supremely through the cross. Because at the cross, Lord, you demonstrated your holiness, you demonstrated your justice, you demonstrated your absolute righteousness, Lord, while at the same time that you punished sin, you made a way, you made a way for us so that we might be saved, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might know life. And Father, I pray first of all for anyone who is here this morning, right now, Lord, they've never taken that step. They've never place their trust in you. They never repented of their sins. And Lord, would you speak to them even now? Would you grant them repentance? Would you grant them faith? Would you grant them new life? And they turn to you. And if you do that today, I would just encourage you to let someone know. There's a lot of ways you can do that, but just let someone know. Tell me about it. Uh, Tell a friend about it. Tell the person who brought you. Just tell them what God has done in your life. And we'll help you take the steps that follow. And maybe you're here as a Christ follower and you realize you've gotten kind of lazy in your spiritual life. You've started taking God lightly. You're not fearing Him. So you ask God about that. Let Him speak to your heart. And Father, we do ask you to expose us to ourselves. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we are, how we've lived. Lord, help us to fear you so that we might know you 
and so that we might receive the blessing that you long to give your children. We ask all these things, Father, now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and who gave his life for our sins. And all God's people said,